Welcome to the Fort Hill Community Church Sunday morning sermon taught by Pastor Aaron Manning. All right, we're going to be in John chapter 18. You can turn to verses 19 to 24 and then 28 to 38. We're basically going to end John 18 today. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Let's get there. Today we are going to go to a trial. Today we're going to see Jesus on trial. I don't know if you guys watch those, you know, crime docu-series or those crime dramas like Law and Order. Never really got into that. Um, you got to respect the longevity. How long has Law and Order been on TV? Like 80 years at this point? I think it was on TV before there even was uh, television, which is pretty impressive, Okay. Um, Jesus today is going to kind of be in his own law and order uh, type deal. He's already been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they've already kind of been on his case investigating him for many months and years in order to finally pin him down. And now that's exactly what we're going to see. Jesus on trial, not once, but twice. We're going to see Jesus on trial twice before a religious court and religious rulers, and then before a political court and political rulers. On trial before priests, and on trial before pre prefects. A back-to-back, racking up the lawyer fees. Jesus is going to be doing that today, okay? Uh, and in both situations, we're going to see how Jesus, though condemned in court, yet still he reigns supreme. Jesus on trial before man's religion, yet reigning supreme over man's religion. Jesus on trial before man's kingdom, yet reigning supreme over man's kingdom. So if you want to turn with me to John 18, we're going to read the trial, uh, the, the trial here, both trials, and then we're going to dive in together. Okay, so let's start in verse 19. Just a quick refresher. Jesus has been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's been betrayed by Judas. He's taken by force uh, by both Roman and Jewish soldiers uh, to now the, uh, the courtroom, so to speak, of, of the Jews with the high priest Annas. Uh, Peter is there as well, sort of hiding in the shadows, denying Jesus three times. Okay, let's read in verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have taught in synagogues, in the temple, where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So Caiaphas was the reigning high priest. Annas was the father-in-law to Caiaphas. He was taken, Annas was taken that, from that position, but he was still seen kind of like the high priest. That's why they took Jesus to, to Annas first. Uh, skipping down to verse 28. Then they laid Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. 
They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken, to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or do others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. And Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come to this world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? Today we're going to see Jesus answer that question. We're going to see him answer a lot of questions. Though on trial, he is the one, again, that will reign supreme. And we're going to take a look at the first court, the first trial in session, the trial against man's religion, the trial with Annas as he tries to condemn Jesus of blasphemy. Jesus, here, that's verses 19 to 24, the first part that we read. This is the showdown that the Pharisees and the high priests in particular had been waiting for. They had wanted to take Jesus out forever. We learn of their murderous intent towards Jesus all the way back at the beginning of the book in John chapter 5. Jesus heals a man who was lame. He heals him on the Sabbath. The Jews didn't like that. And then we read this in John chapter 5, verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was making himself equal with God. Jesus' confession that he is the Son of God, that he is God in the flesh, that he is Lord of the Sabbath, put him in direct opposition in a collision course with the ruless, uh, uh, ruling religious elite, the ruling religious class of his day. And this collision has now come right here in the dead of night during the week of Passover. Jesus stands trial before Annas, the high priest. And what's so important about this trial is that it's going to show us the hypocrisy of man-made religion. That's what we're going to talk about right now. Man-made religion. What is that? Whenever I say that, because you'll, you'll hear you know, people talk about the Christian faith or following Jesus, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. Well, it is a religion, right? I mean, we Christians, right? The Christian is a, a religion. So what, what do we mean by a man-made religion? Religion. That's something that I want to define for us right now. And then we're going to see how Jesus reigns over it and the hypocrisy of man-made religion uh, later on in our text right here. Okay? So first I want to go to Matthew 15, verses 7 to 9. What was so wrong about the Pharisees? Why did they want to kill Jesus? How did they mess it up so much? What was their thinking? What was Jesus coming to condemn how did they messed up their religious faith? Jesus has a lot of really harsh things to say about the Pharisees. He calls them 
whitewashed tombs. He calls them all sorts of crazy stuff. And then I think about that. Do I get to say that stuff too to people? You know, so that's just a, that's just a, a nugget of a question. Maybe we do. I think about uh, in the book of Acts, um, Paul calls, I think it's Simon the Magician, a son of the devil. You son of the devil, stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. Maybe we get to call people son of, the, son of the devil. I don't know, okay? As it is, Jesus had some very harsh words for the Pharisees, and he says this in Matthew 15, verses 7 to 9, quoting the prophet Isaiah, showing how their religion was so futile and busted and broken. It says this, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Man-made religion and the religious elite that have Jesus on trial, they are so off, they are so wrong, they have messed up so much, because they have turned religion and true worship of God into something it isn't. Man-made religion is worship of God in form, but not in substance. God is on our lips, but God is not in our hearts. This is man-made religion. This is the religion of the Pharisees, the religion that Jesus has come to do away with. God on our lips, but not in our hearts. I often think about that for us. We read about the Pharisees, and it's really, really easy to read the Old Testament and, and think, man, the Israelites just, they just whiffed it, right? I mean, God, the Red Sea, you know, Ten Commandments, Mount Sinai, and every single time, a stiff-necked people, right? They won't listen to my, to my commandments. They won't listen to my, to my laws. They won't come to me and be healed. God says over and over and over, and it's easy to think, man, these Israelites, they, they really step in it over and over again. But then I think about myself. Am I like the Israelites? Maybe I'm like the Pharisees. How often do I worship God with my lips, but not with my heart, right? I often lament the state of worship today, or, or think about this a lot. In many churches, and for many pastors, we want to lead people into true, genuine, authentic worship of Jesus, and to think, we think we need to do that by creating an atmosphere, or creating an experience, and that's how we're going to lead people to actually worship Jesus. My prior pastor, just to give an example, was very adamant that the lights in the worship room be put on dimmers so that we could slowly dim the lights in the worship space rather than abruptly turning the lights off, as if that were the difference in leading people to genuine, authentic worship. Okay? We need dimmers. <laughs> we need dimmers. And truth be told, we have dimmers in the back. We didn't put them in there, but we just kind of, they're just already there. But that was it. He didn't, he wanted, and he was very meticulous to show the people back, you know, behind the counter there. You just need to make sure you get it, dim it way down. Okay, but don't go all the way down. Get it like right here, because that was very, very important. I'm not against decreasing distraction. I'm not against making things look nice and trying to make, make it look like we have our act together, which mostly we don't. But, you know, at least, you know, fake it till you make it, right? But I think a lot of what we do as a church is getting you to sing with your lips and not with your heart. And let me tell you, it is a lot harder to get you to sing with your heart. It's a lot easier to get you to sing with your lips. 
How much money do you need to get people to sing with their lips? Well, it's expensive, but you can make it happen. Only God can actually make you sing with your heart. The religion of the Pharisees was busted because they only cared about the lips. They did not care about the heart. Worship in form, but not in substance. That's what Jesus says. Continuing on in Isaiah, that's the first bit. And then he continues, In vain do they worship me. In vain do they worship me. They're, they're singing. They're doing all these things to me, and it's useless. It's futile. That should actually scare you. That they're spending all this time, and then again, is that me? Spending all my time making worship about me. My worship of God is about me. Continuing, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Man-made religion is the teaching of man substituting the commandments of God. Vanity and worship. Worship and teaching where I am the center of it and God is not the center of it. We have this Bible. Yes, we have this Word. Yes, but oftentimes we use it to say what we want it to say. And a lot of times what we want it to say is something that makes us feel good. That's it. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That's why God is there. God is there to make me feel good. It's therapeutic. We live in, we live in an age of, of therapy. We live in an age of the therapeutic. We have an inner self, and this inner self has to be happy and whole and complete. And, and it's sort of like God is orbiting our sun, right? That is not the biblical worldview. We are orbiting the sun of God, S-U-N in the metaphor, but S-O-N too, in Christ Jesus. For the Pharisees, they felt great. These people were so much more righteous than everybody else. Not only did these people tithe their income, they tithed their spice cabinet, right? They would get ready to go to church and be like, all right, let's get the dill, let's get the cumin. If it were me, it'd be all these barbecue spices that I have, right? They're bringing that to church. They're tithing that. These people felt great because they were so much better than everybody else. Jesus calls these people whitewashed tombs. Good on the outside, dead on the inside. Good on the outside, dead on the inside. It was all hypocrisy because they weren't actually following God at all. They were following themselves. And this is no uh, more on display than here, the trial of Jesus. And we're going to look at that. But I just, I just want to emphasize that right now. How do we as a church make worship about us? We have to think about that because we do not want to fall into man-made religion. Jesus came to destroy man-made religion. Continuing, Jesus was interrogated by Annas. It was a sham trial. It's exactly what it was. Annas calls Jesus and begins interrogating actual trial is to call witnesses. The judge doesn't grill the defendant. No, the judge calls witnesses. And then the witnesses are asked, you know, what, is, what happened here, what happened there? Jesus says, look, if you want to know what happened, I haven't been doing this in private. I've had a public ministry for three years. Everyone knows what I've done. I've preached in the synagogues. I've preached in the towns. I've preached along the way. If you want to call witnesses, call them. Whenever he says that, what happens? He gets slapped in the face, right? He gets slapped in the face. This is a sham trial. 
And so what do they do? After the sham trial, they take Jesus to Pilate. Jesus, after enduring the sham trial, is taken to Pilate. And here, the hypocrisy that we've defined of man-made religion is on full display. Check this out. John 18, verse 28 to 31, just to jog your memory, says this. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. They're going to see Pilate. It was early morning. So all this happened in the dead of night, and now it's like the rooster just crowed. Remember, uh, Peter denied Jesus three times. The rooster crows. It was like Levi this morning at 5.30, waking me up out of, the, you know, out of, out of my bed, okay? Um, that's, I guess you didn't need to know that, but that's how early it is, okay? So they're going early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So the Jews are going, they're meeting with Pilate, but they don't actually go into his house. So they get the Passover. When Pilate went outside to them, he said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, he would not be delivered over to you. Pilate said to him, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Here's the hypocrisy, the irony, and the tragedy. It says in verse 28, they did not enter the room where Pilate was because to do so would make them ceremonially unclean. It says so that they would not be defiled. Okay, the rule, the law here to be in the same room with a non-Jew, Pilate was a Roman, he was a Gentile, to be in the room with a non-Jew makes you unclean. According to their law, you are unclean and it would keep them from celebrating the Passover. So this is what's going on. They are literally committing the most despicable act in history, brokering a deal to have Jesus murdered. In the middle of this, they are still careful to keep their man-made religious law. How crazy is that? This is what R.C. Sproul says. These men were scrupulous to avoid any ritual defilement, even while they were carrying out the most vile act of human history. As they delivered the Lamb of God to the slaughter, they made sure their hands were ceremonially clean. How crazy. And not only were they careful to keep their own law, they were careful to keep their enemies' law. The Romans. As a subdued people under Roman rule, the Romans took away the power of capital punishment. People that lived under the rule of the Romans could not execute anyone. That was the job of the Romans. If it were up to the Jews, Jesus would have been stoned to death. You would not be wearing a cross on your neck. You'd be wearing a stone, right? He would have been stoned to death for blasphemy. But the Jews can't execute anyone. And so if Jesus was going to die, the Romans were going to have to do it. As they said, verse 31, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. So at the end of all this, The only law that matters, the law of God, the only word that matters, the word of God, is the only word that wasn't followed, right? It's the only law that wasn't followed. The word that came out from Jesus at the beginning of his ministry to repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand, is the word that must be resisted and its messenger destroyed. Such is the nature of man-made religion. It elevates man it obscures God. 
And Jesus has come to destroy that. And he destroys that by replacing self-righteous rule-keeping with genuine relationship. God is the goal. Jesus is the goal. God's glory is the goal. It's not about me. So much of what we do as a church is appealing to felt needs of people. And if I'm over here just trying to make you feel good, then I'm missing the point. It's about God's glory. It's not about you. None of this is about you. It's about God being glorified through you. And let me tell you, that is for your good. That's why Jesus says, if whoever wants to follow me, let him die to himself. Take up his cross and follow me. The first to be last. The last will be first. It flips it over. God says you're going to find your life whenever you actually lose it for my sake. If you're living for your own ends, you're just going to destroy it because you weren't made to be God of your life. I am God of your life, and I made you. God has a law. He still called us to live a certain way, but now in Jesus Christ, he's changed our hearts, so now we want to live according to his law. Not to gain righteousness, that righteousness has been given to us through Jesus, but to magnify his glory and worth. Living according to God's word is not a burden, but a joy. I remember in college, just growing up in church, my, you know, my dad was a pastor and all that stuff. How boring. How boring. I'm just being honest. Going to church, how boring this was. You know, the last Sunday of every month, we'd have a potluck. That was the best Sunday every month, right? Food. That's what I want. I want food, right? I didn't get it. I didn't get it. I didn't want Jesus. I wanted, you know, chicken and dumplings and fried chicken, right? That's what we ate there. And it was good, too, but not as good as Jesus, okay? Then I get to college. I wake up. The taste and see that the Lord is good. We've all fallen in sin. We don't see him as we ought. Jesus has come to open up our eyes. He's changed our hearts. He has secured for us a salvation through his body and his blood. He is our righteousness. He has destroyed our religion and replaced it with true, genuine worship of God. Now, how does any of this make sense? How does any of this make sense? You all probably agree with everything I'm saying. I mean, you came here today. You actually care about religion. But we live in an irreligious age. Most people, most people, they don't care about that. If I talk about man-made religion, what does it matter to me if Jesus has come to set me free from man-made religion if I don't care about religion in the first place? In our secular age, for most people, we've done away with feeling bad about ourselves when we go against what God wants us to do. Right? We don't really feel about it. In fact, the more we think about it, God actually approves of all the things we personally want to do. Funny how that works. God actually approves of everything that you want to do. He's for it. He's like grandpa in the sky, just happy that you visited him. Right? It's like whenever I call my grandma, 45 minutes, you can count on it. Okay? I love my grandma. I'd love to, it's fine, okay? But anyways, how, how does, why does this matter in a world that has rejected religion wholesale? Well, I think it matters because at the end of the day, 
You can't escape man-made religion. People might not go to church. People might not claim a specific belief, but you can't escape man-made religion. Even with it being pushed out of the public square and God out of the public square, secular society still has religious convictions, okay? Views, stances that are deemed acceptable, views and stances that are deemed unacceptable. Things you can say, things you can't say. In fact, it's a good place to start. If you want to know who the gods of a society are, ask yourself, what can you say and what can you not say? If you don't know who the gods of society are, what are you not allowed to say? If I were to go to the streets of Mecca, Saudi Arabia, that's the most holy city for Muslims, and begin preaching the gospel and calling all the Muslims to repent of their sin, to embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior, not as a prophet, not as a man, but as God in the flesh, to reject their Islam beliefs and to embrace the truths of the Bible, that'd be the last message I'd ever preach, right? That'd be it. I'd go out with a bang, right? Why? Because I'm committing blasphemy. I'm preaching against their gods. The same thing that Jesus was charged with. He was preaching against their gods. Now, what is blasphemy in our age? What can you not say on our streets? If I were to go to our streets, if I were to go, look at USM campus, right over here. I remember I went there once. I was putting up a poster. There were two guys open air preaching, these two old guys. And then these two college kids were like, heckling them as they were preaching, and they were playing Highway to Hell by ACDC while they were open-air preaching. True story, okay? They were preaching in their streets. What were they not allowed to say? Well, if I began calling people to repent of their sins, if I began preaching the gospel message, and then I actually started specifying what those sins are, there's a saying that sins are like grapes. They come in bunches. If you read through the New Testament, you'll see bunches of sins. And I start telling people, you need to repent. You need to repent of your sexual immorality. This is what the Bible says about human sexuality and what is good and what is right. This is what the Bible says about marriage, one, one man, one woman. We think about you know, teachings on homosexuality and stuff like that. We believe something even more radical. Sex is for marriage. Wow, crazy, right? If I began preaching things about gender, heck, if I began preaching things about the nature of man, if I were to read, just quote from Romans 1, the second half of Romans 1, starting in verse 17, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God's wrath revealed against your unrighteousness, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The Bible's diagnosis of the human condition is brutal. It's brutal. How the Bible describes what is at the core of your heart, apart from Jesus, is brutal. Okay? That all of our righteous deeds are filthy rags before God in sin. Genesis 3, if I were to read all of that, what response do you think that I would get? And which gods do you think we would find? Talking about USM, I was there for, I was helping out a lady who leads the campus ministry. A girl came and she was an exchange student, I think, from Sweden. And it was a, it was a, 
sort of event fair where all the different student organizations set up tables and stuff like that so that they could get to know new students. This girl came, we were chatting with her. The moment she realized that we were a Christian group, her face changed. It was like a shadow just hit her face. And her whole demeanor changed. And she said, it looks like she was trying to control herself. I do not think this is the type of group I would be interested in. And then she walked away. Now, I don't know. Maybe she has a bad experience with the church. Maybe you know, there's things going on. I don't know. I'm willing to bet that's probably not it. I'm willing to bet that the message of the Bible and the message of Jesus speaks against her gods. Right? The gods of secular society. You can't escape man-made religion. You cannot escape it. Whether it's our secular religion, quote-unquote, or religious religion, whether it's Pharisees, or whether it's modern-day Pharisees, you can't escape it. There's a law that comes down from on high and must be strictly adhered to. Jesus is the only one that has come and done away with the constraints of the law, the only law that actually matters, God's law, and he's done away with it, not by saying it doesn't matter, but he's done away with it by keeping it in our place, by accomplishing it, by perfecting it, so that now, whenever you believe in him, his perfect righteousness, his perfect law-keeping is credited to you by works, by faith. By faith, a relationship with God in Christ Jesus, by faith. That's the only escape. Whether you believe any other religion, whether you believe the secular religion, it's always works, 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 law, law, law. Only in Christ Jesus are we saved by faith. Jesus has done away with man's religion. We see that with the Pharisees. The second trial is the political trial with Pilate. And here we see him do away with another pillar of society. Jesus has done away with man's kingdom. This is what it says in verse 33, going to verse 38. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation, the chief priests, had delivered you over to me. What have you done? There must be something up. Your own people don't like you. That's, that's what it says. The beginning of John. He came to his own people. His owner people received him not. Verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I came into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said, What is truth? Here we meet Pilate for the first time. Pilate, very important. He was the governor or the prefect. That was another term of Judea, where the Jews were. He was appointed in this position by the emperor Tiberius. 
He served in this role from AD 26 to AD 36. Talk about luck of the draw, right? Of all of human history, at all time, in all the places in the world, for a decade, you're put to rule in the very place where Jesus will be, right? In the three years of ministry that Jesus, I mean, Jesus was older than that, obviously, but three years of public ministry, and Pilate's the guy. Of all the guys, Pilate's the guy. The head honcho. We have inscriptions. We have archaeological evidence that Pilate was the guy. We have that. We have inscriptions from the time period describing all of this. His rule was marked by much friction with the Jewish people. There's, there's history here, even as we're reading. The Jews and Pilate have bumped heads a lot. He often offended their religious sensibilities. There's violence. There was bloodshed. Typically, Pilate wouldn't even be in Jerusalem. He would be in Caesarea, not in Jerusalem. But given the history, given the large crowds because of Passover week, Pilate is in Jerusalem to control the crowds should he need to. And now, he has to deal with Jesus. Although he doesn't want to, he has to deal with Jesus. He thinks that this is a religious matter. This is a religious dispute. What do I have to do with your religious law? I have nothing to do with this. So he tells Jesus to judge them, judge him themselves. The Jews understand this. They're smart. So what do they do? They lay a different charge against Jesus. Not a charge of blasphemy, according to their law, but a charge of insurrection, according to Roman law. This is the charge. Luke 23, 3. And just read between the lines here. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Do you think they really wanted to give tribute to Caesar? No. And saying that he himself is Christ, that the title is the Messiah, a king. So they are charging Jesus with political insurrection against Caesar. So this is your issue, Pilate. This is not our issue. They're making it political, not theological. And now Pilate has to deal with this guy. This exchange centers around the accusation, is Jesus a king? That's why Pilate asks him in verse 33, are you a king? From this exchange, we're going to learn two things about Jesus being over man's kingdom. Jesus is a king, but he's not just king of the Jews. This is what it says in verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over the Jews. My kingdom is not from this world. Appreciate this. Jesus says my kingdom is not of this world. He's saying it to a man that represents the most powerful kingdom in the world, the Romans. Jesus is speaking of a greater kingdom, an eternal kingdom. He's talking about the kingdom of God that he was sent to bear witness to. Again, from the very beginning of every gospel book that you read, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is here. The king has come to his creation to establish his reign and his rule over all of God's creation. We see Jesus coming into Jerusalem on a donkey. Why a donkey? That was a sign of a king. A king coming to take back his rule. Not that God lost it. 
but to bring it in in a way that has never been experienced before, that all nations will call on, on the Lord as king. If you read Isaiah chapter 2, that was the prophecy, that the, the mountain of the Lord is higher than any other mountain, and all the nations flow uphill, up mountain, to be where God, to worship Him. That was always the prophecy. The promise to Abraham that in you all the nations of the world will be blessed. Galatians picks that up and says that promise was made complete in Christ Jesus. He is a king. And because Jesus is king, all other kings must take notice. This is from Psalm chapter 2. This is a psalm that the early church themselves quoted as they were being persecuted and beaten and bloodied and bruised. This is what says, verses 1 to 6 and then 10 through 12. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Who is his anointed? Jesus. Saying, let us burst their bonds apart. Let us throw off their rule and cast away their cords from us. God he who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge. In him. There's a saying that I've heard and I think it applies. If Christ isn't Lord of all, he isn't Lord at all. If Christ isn't Lord of all, he isn't Lord at all. If Jesus is Lord, he's Lord of every single nook and cranny of this world. Okay? In this world, you will be called to take a knee. We've seen this and we are seeing this, especially in the age of COVID. I've seen pastors in Canada arrested at their homes, ripped from the arms of their little children, put in police cars, and put in jail for the crime of preaching on Sunday and gathering their congregation to worship Jesus. It's a true story. It's a real story. I watched that video, and as a pastor, that hits very close to home. Would I be put in that situation? Would I have to make the decision to bring you all together and preach or risk going to jail? Maybe. It happened in Canada. We're what, like five hours from Canada? Right? I think I would. I hope I would. As Christians, we are called, we're going to be called in this world to take a knee. We are not revolutionaries. We are not insurrectionists. We're called to pray for our governing authorities and our leaders that we may live quiet and peaceable, faithful lives, but you must understand that where the kingdom of God and where the kingdom of man intersect and cross, which is at many points, you must bow the knee to Jesus because Jesus is king. His kingdom is not of this world. It's coming in and changing and transforming this world. Jesus is king. And as king, he came for one specific purpose, as he says in verse 37. You say that I am king for this purpose I was born for this purpose I've come in the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. I love this statement because the interpretation is clear. It's kind of hard to mess this one up 
What does Jesus mean? He came to preach the truth. Not a truth, not my truth, not your truth, the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 8. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth. My word is truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus is establishing the kingdom of God here on this earth through the proclamation of the truth. Other parts of the gospel say that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. What I'm saying, those are not the opposite. He seeks and he saves the lost by proclaiming the truth. It is not unloving to proclaim the truth. That is what Jesus did, and they killed him for it. And Pilate, in tragic irony, just like the Pharisees, looking truth in the eyeballs, says, what is truth? And it's a question that's still being asked today. As a society, we have all but abandoned any objective standard of truth. It is whatever you want it to be. Truth is relative. What I'm telling you, you cannot believe that and follow Jesus at the same time. He does not give you the option. You cannot adopt a postmodern worldview where truth is relative and culturally constructed, where truth changes depending on the generation, depending on where you are, without also denying Jesus. Jesus comes and puts under his feet all worldly philosophies, all paradigms, all worldly kingdoms through this statement. What is truth? Pilate asks. Jesus says, I am, and there is no other. Who will listen to such words? Who will listen to such declarations? Jesus tells us, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And so as we close, what are you of? Whose kingdom are you a part? Whose law are you abiding by? Whose religion are you adhering to? We trick ourselves and think that there's a, a squishy middle where we can kind of define terms and sort of claim some of this Jesus stuff and some of this world stuff and kind of live in this gray. If you read the Bible, that's not how it works. You're actually living in darkness. You're not walking in light. Jesus came. He was put on trial of religion. He was put on a trial of politic. And he is subjected both to himself on the cross and defeated both in the tomb. He has come to establish a kingdom not of this world, but proclaiming the truth. And here's the truth. There's a God who created you, a God who loves you. You have turned from this God and rejected his rightful rule over you. You are more loved than you realize, but in far worse condition than you would ever admit to being. You have sinned and fallen short of his glory. You deserve just death for that. That's what the Bible says. But Jesus has come and died the death you deserve and lived the life you were not able to so that if you turn from your sins, place your faith in him, commit to him, embrace him, this Jesus who died for your sins also rose from the dead in victory so that you too can have newness of life. You will be saved. That's the gospel truth. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your word that comes and confronts. It's a word that comes and makes no apologies for itself. It's a word that comes and 
often offers no nuance, no qualification. It says, just as Peter says in 2 Corinthians, open, sorry, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, by an open statement of the truth, we make our appeal. Lord, help us to be a people that follow the example of Jesus, especially in this age. Lord, we have to be wise. We have to be innocent. But help us to be bold in wisdom and in innocence. We need to be like Jesus who on, tr on trial spoke the truth and through doing that established his kingdom. We need boldness as a church. We need to think rightly. We need to consider the society and the environment that we find ourselves. We need to apply the word faithfully so that Jesus will be loved and proclaimed and, lo and known. Help us to do that. We can't do that without your spirit, Lord. And we confess that we wouldn't believe anything had you not in your kindness come and open up our eyes. And that same spirit that opened up our eyes, that transform and is transforming us into the very image of Jesus right now is the same one that will open up the eyes of this community, this town, of those that we know and love that don't know you. Lord, we pray that you would do that. And we know that you'll do that through a bold church. Forgive us of our sins continual repentance and forgive us where we have made following you about us and not about you forgive us lord where we become fearful of lesser kingdoms where we become more concerned with what lesser kings want from us than what you want from us in this age will you find us faithful i pray that you would we love you lord help us to hold fast to the confession we pray all these things in the name of jesus amen You've been listening to the Sunday morning sermon taught by Pastor Aaron Manning at Fort Hill Community Church in Gorham, Maine. For more information about Pastor Aaron or Fort Hill Community Church, visit us on Facebook or check out our website at www.forthillchurch.com.